I'm Theo. And I'm Juliet. And this is Apologies Accepted. We offer an entertaining look at some of the big issues in history by examining public apologies of the famous and infamous. We're looking at politicians, serial killers, actors, and you. Send us a public apology you would like to make, and we'll read it on the air and give you a chance to redeem yourself, or just get some guilt off your shoulders. We're here for you. Once a week, maybe more if you're really, really sorry. Hi, everybody. Hey, everybody. This is Apologies Accepted, the, the podcast. podcast. And I'm not Theo. And I am not Juliet. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And you never, no, and you refuse to be. What's shaking, Bacon? Well, my week has just been all work and uh, pre show I shared with you, like all the work stuff. Um, so, yes, I had gossip. A, the hot it, gossip. The hot gossip at my job. And then, um, took the weekend to have like a nice quiet weekend sort of decompress from like all of the noise at work and sweet great and so yesterday was beautiful i didn't do anything i went shopping bought stuff nothing major what'd you buy i want to know what you bought something that got me in trouble i bought um (laughs) i don't it's like a filing cabinet but for beauty products ish beauty products it's really it's an office drawer you'd stick it on your desktop and you put papers or it's it's drawers i'm over explaining a stupid thing so i bought this little small white cabinet to sit on top of our uh vanity in the bathroom yeah yeah because there's so much um lotions and hair products and i relate medications and for sure ointments just you name a thing and like it's in a tube and it's sitting on our on our vanity, yeah. right? So it's just like, get the shit out of place, out of place, out of sight, to get in place. So, yeah. So where did you find this? Oh well, the outlet. Oh. Oh okay. Yeah. Okay. The pottery bar. I saw outlet. one on TikTok that I wanted to buy that was made for beauty products, but I was wondering if you saw the same thing. No, no, no. This this okay. was straight, um, purely a find in the wild where it was like. Oh, well, this is meant for office supplies, but I could adapt it because it'll hold tubes of lotions. They're great. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. And then then I was politely reminded that those things were not mine, nor were they mine to to put away. But... Oh, well, okay. Well, that sounds harsher than it was. That was meant... (laughs) half as a joke but i but the bathroom is half yours and you get to say what goes on in your bathroom well let's say that remind him of that is mine period <laughs> you have the whole outside world but i get in here and you get the house anyway yeah so that does sound worse than it uh than it was <laughs> it was meant more as a joke but it was also definitely meant as uh i appreciate your helpfulness but please don't reorganize my stuff um so you really don't have bottles and and tubes of of beauty products for yourself they're they're all for james look at me do you think i have moisturizer (laughs) well i mean yeah i it's you don't really strike me as a sort of person to use a lot of beauty products but no i don't because i don't look like uh, (laughs) i mean no that's not what i'm saying oh my god (laughs) oh my god no, what I'm saying, but um, but yeah, I'd assume that you would share the the load equally of um, beauty products. 
Well, uh, short answer is no. I, I can't even be bothered. If it's not a black t-shirt, I can't be bothered to put it on. <laughs> so, you know, facial creams and all that. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah. But so, um, so that's the story of the bathroom vanity organizer. Uh, and it, that story, I'm sure, will now haunt me forever. This will be the one episode that James does listen to. Yeah, right. And we need like, to I talk about that, this organizer. Like that. That's not how it went. Uh, but yeah, so this morning I went out to get some coffee pre-show, obviously pre-show. Um, yeah. Like, get some coffee and get those brain cells firing. And Smart. And drive around your old neighborhoods and take a look at the places you used to live. Because that's what I do, oh. right? Because I like to do that. Yeah. And so um, what a morning, I will say, and yeah. and how some of it, how some of my morning ties into this episode. So um I went out and got coffee, and the barista was the son of a friend, and I had no idea that he was working at Starbucks, and when he stuck his head out the window to say hi to me, I thought that he was trying to get my phone so that he could <laughs> scan the barcode to pay for the coffee, and oh. my first thought was, this barista's really in a hurry, but... <laughs> Surprise, surprise. So that was a pleasant surprise. And then I drove past our old house and this cat was just sitting in the middle of the road right in front mm. of my old house and did not move as my car came oh, wow. up the road, wow. right? Now, I drive through my old neighborhoods hoping that my neighbors will not see me because right. I don't want them to be like the, oh, he moved away, but he can't stop coming around. Oh, look at him. <laughs> so curious about what's happening in his old town. So um, the cat sat there probably for three minutes just staring me down. Wow. And uh, I was like, I know someone's going to come out to get the morning paper if people still do that or pull out of their driveway or be walking or jogging or taking their dog out, whatever. Yeah. And they're going to be like, Theo, what are you And they're going to see you run over that cat. Well, yeah. I would definitely have, <laughs> that cat would have been toast if one of my neighbors had shown up and like, <laughs> Um, so cool. And then I was driving to our old other neighborhood. Doesn't matter. Another place I lived. And I drive right past the police station in downtown Austin, which is where there is a, a large homeless encampment because there's a, um, or unhoused encampment, um, because there is a, a shelter there. And if you can't get mm -hmm. into the shelter, then the parking lot at the police station is a safe place to be. It's well lit mm -hmm. and there are cops, so mm -hmm. I, I more than get it. But what happens is some of the people will um, stand out in the middle of the road in order to ask for money or try and clean your windshield. And so uh. this was an uncomfortable and not happy moment for me. Um, we'll just tell the story. So I'm at the stoplight. It's like seven o'clock in the morning. There's nobody on the road. There's one other car, right? This is like a four lane road freeway entrance. Uh, um, I don't know what to call it. Feeder road. So this guy comes over and he starts washing my windshield. Uh -huh. Typically when people want to earn money from washing your windshield, they will come up and they'll wave at you and they'll ask, right? This guy just went yeah. straight to it. Yeah. And so, uh, old LA reflexive move. I hit my windshield wipers and said, I don't need it. And then I thought, you know what? That's kind of an asshole. 
you know. And the guy stopped washing my windshield, but leaning over and started, you know, saying something. I'm not sure what, because all this happened within mm-hmm. the same five seconds. And mm-hmm. so I rolled my window down and I said, no, thank you. And the look on his face was outrage. And I was just like, Ugh. and then I said, go away. And he said, wow. go away. And then he leaned on my car and oh, no. stared at me through the windshield. Right. Ugh. And I was like, oh, God, he's going to sit here and make a giant point of this. So I put my car in oh. park and I turned on my hazards. And then I automatically reached for my phone and I was like, well, time to call 911. And then mm-hmm. thought about it and was like, you know, if you do that, that that is not going to end well for anybody. Right. right. And also, th- really, you have to call 911. You can just sit in your car and deal with it. You invited this mm-hmm. on yourself, sucker. So have mm-hmm. a good morning. The light turned green and he got off of the car and bowed and said, take three deep breaths and pray. And I put my car in drive and drove away. And it was like, Jesus, your first thing was to dial 911? That was sort of like where I went to, right? Um, I might have too, though. I mean, I would have felt intimidated and a little frightened. Um, I definitely realized I'd bitten off more than I could chew. Um, yeah. But also recognized that uh, the power dynamic was weighed massively in my favor. It right. Really, am I going to let this be the thing? Come on, Theo, just stop it. But also can't believe that you did the classic move of I am going to call 911. And of course... Um, uh, being the person that I am, I got caught into, I don't even know what to call it, like a liberal vortex of if uh-huh. I call 911 on a person of color, then I am just contributing to these problems, blah, 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 blah. So right. happily the light turned green and happily he did not want to make a massive point out of how I dismissed That's him good. as a human yeah. being by saying, go away. I might say that to anybody who was bothering me in public, but um, you know, I for sure felt more free to say that to somebody who was homeless um, trying to earn some money on the street. So didn't Mm -hmm. feel awesome. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, Mm -hmm. fuck it. And I drove to my old house and that's where uh, the bar was with all the shootings in the past. And uh, it's ACL this weekend. So it was like a big, massive party on 11th Street last night. This morning? Well, this morning was sort of the, the... evidence of a massive party right four cop closed down the side street next to the bar and had a patron and i could i just know there was a bar patron who was going to the bar um and uh don't know what was happening but i was like you know what this doesn't feel like the morning for you to be out gallivanting around maybe you should just go (laughs) home (laughs) and close the door and so that's what i did glad you don't live in any of those old neighborhoods anymore well, um, don't know what's going on. Don't know if it's ACL. Don't know if it's me. But uh, I think it's a really great day for me just to stay inside. <laughs> Definitely. What about you? What's yeah. shaking bacon? Take us um, home. We're happy. Well, 
I went to Big Sur last weekend, which was nice. Um, uh, we went down on Friday afternoon, and it's about a three and a half hour drive. It took about four and a half hours because of traffic was so bad. Um, down through San Jose all the way past Santa Cruz, like about half an hour past Santa Cruz. It was really bad. So that took a little bit longer than expected, but that's fine. Um, we got there and the place we're staying in was like the Big Sur Lodge, which is nice. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was nice for Big Sur. It wasn't fantastic. There's a couple of hotels in Big Sur that are absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and at $4,000 a night, literally, um, which no way, no way in a million years, even if I had millions of dollars, would I spend $4,000 a night in no. a hotel room? Um, I'm sure that it's beautiful and the views are stunning and all that, but no, what is um, worth we stayed 4, at the Big Sur Lodge. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. Um, so we stayed at the Big Star Lodge, and it was nice. It was a little bit rustic, um, but and, and there was no uh, no wireless, basically no wireless or um, cell phone service. So that was a little bit interesting, trying to live without cell phone service for the first time in years and years. And it was actually fine. I did fine without it. Um, I did bring a book, but I, I didn't even read the book. I just, I don't know what I did, but we didn't have a TV. I don't think there was a TV in the room, come to think of it. Um they probably wasn't any cable either, so it was just very, um, very relaxed and very low key. And we went to lunch at the Sierra Mar at the Post Ranch Inn, which is one of those four thousand dollar a night hotels. And it was expensive lunch. It was a prefix, and it was um, it was pretty good. I would say uh, it was a good meal. I don't know that it was worth. The meal itself was not worth the hundred and some dollars per person for lunch, but the, or two hundred maybe um, per person per lunch. But the view was gorgeous. We were seated right in the corner uh, overlooking the um, the cliffs and the ocean. And it was foggy for the first half of the meal, but uh, the fog cleared up um, at, towards the end and we could see the cliffs. And it was just absolutely gorgeous. So it was, it was a really, um, a very nice relaxing meal. And the night before we'd actually eaten at a place called the, I think the Big Sur Restaurant and Bakery, which was the best meal we had and also the cheapest, but the, their bread was absolutely outstanding. So if you ever go to Big Sur, go to the Big Sur Restaurant and Bakery. Um, they had, we had some, I think it was trout, um, for dinner, which was absolutely delicious, and then the bread was just just this kick-ass bread. So I recommend that place. Um, and then for lunch, the final day we were there, we went to um, Ventana. I forget the name of the place, um, but uh, it was uh, another place that was right on the edge of the cliffs. Only this was outside, and it was uh, the the sun came out about ten minutes into lunch, so um, everything cleared up, and, and it was just again gorgeous views, good meal. This kind of hamburger type of place. Um, you know, expensive hamburgers and things like that. Brent had fish tacos, and they were um, they were just fine. Um, but the, again, you're paying really for the location and the fact that you're eating it at Ventana, which is another one of those four thousand dollar a night hotels. So overall, a successful weekend. Uh, we we walked around a little bit. You know, I wouldn't call it hiking, but we walked around some trails and uh, saw some things. Um, didn't really. Kind of went shopping. Went to a cafe. With, with an art gallery, didn't buy anything, um, but I think that was a successful weekend. It was very relaxing and uh, low-key, and next weekend, this coming weekend, actually, we're going to go up to Ashland, Oregon for the Ashland Shakespeare, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which we used to do pretty much every year until COVID, and this will be the first year since COVID that we have uh, have gone, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I wish that I had um, book to stay for a day or two longer than I did because it's just just a few two three days that we're going to be there um and we're going to it's jam-packed with stuff to do like you know dinner and lunch and um 
two plays a day basically and it's going to be nuts so i wish that we had more time but uh, i think it'll be i think it'll be fun oh my gosh okay so many questions the first question is when you went to the four thousand dollar a night hotel for lunch or the yeah. meals yeah what was the lobby like well, we didn't go to the lobby because in either case, because um, the restaurants have separate entrances. Oh, okay. So I didn't see the lobby, but the restaurants were beautiful. Um, the first one, you had to climb up this big, this tall set of stairs, like outdoors, outdoor stairs to get there, which was more than I was expecting at that point in my in my day. But it was fine. Um, and you just you just go up the stairs and at the top of the stairs, there's the entrance to the restaurant. And I'm not even sure where the lobby was, to be honest. I guess it might have been downstairs when we first, uh, where the stairs started, but I didn't I didn't notice it. Uh, Brent probably knows. And then the other one, um, you walk in and you go off to the side a little bit, and then there's an entrance to the restaurant. So I don't know. But I'm sure it's gorgeous because, like I said, the restaurant was gorgeous. Wow. Um, I'm very curious now. So yeah. when I come visit you guys in Ashland at some future day, I will then yeah. make it a point of driving down to Big Sur to walk through the lobby of a hotel that's $4,000 a night so I can scope it out for myself. Yeah. yeah. You can ask them to Google. look at a room. They probably let you. Huh? I guess I could Google it. I you don't have Google to be it. all 1970s. I've got to physically go person. and see it to, myself. That's a make an eight-hour drive. You could look it, on, look it up online. <laughs> that's how badly I need to know whether or not they have big, heavy velvet drapes that are hanging from the ceiling or if they have white linen pillows yeah. i i need to know yeah. everything now um yeah wow we are way off topic here uh, <laughs> yeah we are off topic yeah. we're talking about prisons today <laughs> 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 so um we can talk about that if you like um although it's not as fun uh we can talk about the uh information about the um experiments that a university of Pennsylvania faculty member performed on Philadelphia's Holmesburg prison inmates. So the information for this story comes from the Philadelphia Inquirer, Wikipedia, and a statement from the mayor's office of Philadelphia. Um, so this is about Holmesburg prison, which is now closed, uh, but was allegedly called the Terror Dome, according to Wikipedia. It was a prison operated by the city of Philadelphia and the Pennsylvania Department of Prisons from 1896 to 1995. So almost 100 years, didn't quite make it. Um, and we're talking about the University of Pennsylvania faculty member um, who, upon entering the Holmesburg prison for the first time, called it an idle collection of humanity that seemed ideal for dermatologic study. Dermat dermatologist Albert Kligman said, all I saw before me were acres of skin. It was like a farmer seeing a fertile field for the first time. And Kligman went on to perform extensive experiments, exposing inmates to herpes, staphylococcus, cosmetics, skin-blistering chemicals, radioactive isotopes, psychoactive drugs, and carcinogenic compounds such as dioxins. And he received financial backing from 33 different sponsors, including Johnson & Johnson, Dow Chemicals, and the U.S. Army. One inmate described experiments involving exposure to microwave radiation, sulfuric and carbonic acid, solutions with which corroded and reduced their forearm skin to a leather-like substance and acids which blistered skin in the testicular areas. Ow! In addition to exposure to harmful chemical agents, patients were asked to physically exert themselves and were then immediately put under the knife to remove sweat glands for examination. In even more gruesome accounts, fragments of cadavers were stitched into the backs of inmates to determine if the fragments could grow back into functional organs. Such experiments did not simply affect the... Yes. I had just to stop right there and say that this was yes. happening, what, in the 1950s? 
this was happening um, uh, through the 70s i know but through the 70s yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think in 1950s we knew that you could not stick any organ anywhere and have it regenerate <laughs> or regrow I mean, you think some of that bullshit is just such bullshit. It's because we can. It really is. I mean, yeah. I. You don't have if, to. If you put sulfuric acid on the skin, do you not know that it's gonna it's gonna corrode the skin? I don't think we need to do this. No, and, you, and if you need to do it, you don't need to do it with living skin. You can use. Yeah. I don't want to say animal skin, but cadavers. You, yeah, pig skin or or cadavers. Um, yeah. I get that living tissue is different from, I'll use a big medical term, necrotic tissue um, or dead tissue. But, you know, come on, people. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, my outrage there. I was just like. Uh, it's something to be outraged about for sure. Because such experiments did not simply affect the well-being of individual inmates, but also affected the health of entire cell blocks due to an experimentation with biological agents, including Hong Kong flu, poison ivy, and poison oak. And in a Johnson & Johnson study, inmates were injected with asbestos to compare it against talc. Please. After obtaining uh, some 1,800 pages of Pentagon records, the Inquirer published a report in 1979 detailing a contract between the University of Pennsylvania and the U.S. Army. With Dr. Kligman at the helm of the research, more than 300 inmates tested mind control drugs. I mean, MKUltra is everywhere. It's, um, yep. Everywhere. And potential skin hardeners to protect soldiers from chemical warfare. In the latter experiments, the paper found inmates complained bitterly of side effects, including inflammation that lasted weeks and eventually eliminated the willingness of the subjects to go on. So common was the experimentation that in the 1,200-person facility, around 80% to 90% of inmates were experimented on. Many of the former in inmates, not surprisingly, would have lifelong scars excuse me, and health issues from the experiments. So, all the inmates who were tested on the trials consented to the experimentation. However, they mostly agreed due to incentives like monetary compensation. The Holmesburg prison experiments paid an extraordinary amount compared to other prison jobs, and at the time, in Philadelphia's prisons, inmates were able to, ex to end their sentence if they could pay for 10% of the bail amount. So, in such a system, experiments were an easy means to earn the money for freedom. And the forms they signed for some of these experiments never mentioned the chemicals used or potential side effects. They simply authorized the experiments and aimed to clear the hospital, laboratories, and prison of any liability for complications. Kligman later said, I began to go to the prison regularly, although I had no authorization. It was years before the authorities knew that I was conducting various studies on prison, prisoner volunteers. Things were simpler then. Informed consent was unheard of. Oh, no one asked yes. me what I was doing. It was a wonderful time. It sure was, and I'll bet you he would say the same thing if those experiments were happening on his own family. That's exactly Wonderful right. time. Unbelievable. So, of course, the vast majority of people subjected to this experimentation were black men, many of whom were illiterate, awaiting prosecution and attempting to save enough money to make bail. One of the, a group of inmates filed a lawsuit against the university in Kligman in 2000, but it was ultimately thrown out because of a statute of limitations. And Dr. Albert Kligman went on to pioneer the acne and wrinkle treatment, Redne. 
Well, which you know, yes. yeah. Hi, that's uh, what I'm currently using. So nothing using. bad happened to Doctor Klingman. He, I, I assume he died, although I didn't look it up, and uh, he never was was called to task for the terrible things that he did. Um, but the University of Pennsylvania did issue a formal formal apology last year and took Klingman's name off some honorifics, including an annual lecture series and professorship. The university also directed research funds to fellows focused on dermatological issues in people of color. Yeah, it's a shame uh, that this happened right but yeah. outside of like the shame for humanity um for yeah. this guy kliegman he's credited with raising dermatology from like an, i'll say obscure field of study right but for bringing science to dermatology right and so he's sort of the the force behind the i don't know what word to use the field Right. Yeah. Elevating it from um, a section of medical study to like its own medical discipline. And and look what we could do. We could prove through science. And yeah, he would have had a really great um, legacy had it not been for the Holmberg prison experiments. Well, you can't. I mean, I, I can only imagine that this isn't the only unethical thing that he did. Probably not. So but it's the only one that we know about. willing to. Yeah, somebody willing to do this kind of thing and call it a wonderful time. Probably yeah. was doing other things as well. It's just, uh, it's creepy. It's extremely creepy. It, it's unfortunate. And it does get back to that point of how do you separate the artist from the art, right? And, <laughs> and, like, you know, am I going to stop using Retin-A? Um, no. Right. But Well, I don't use Retin-A. I use something like it. So, so I'm absolved of all guilt because right. I don't yet to use the brand name Renme. <laughs> it's the horrible monster that I am. I will continue to support Kleigman Kliegman. Um, yeah, yeah. His last name isn't helping things either. Kliegman. It's a very, very Joseph Mengele sounding doctor. Oh yeah, name. totally. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So before we get into the apology, do you have any background for us? I do have some background. Um, so I wasn't too interested in Kliegman because I just felt like, all right, that story writes itself. Abusive doctor disregards people's humanity, particularly when mm -hmm. they're people of color and especially when they're in prison. Right. Right. Um, and so cool. Let's take a look at um, why this prison may have lent itself so readily to experiments upon humans. Okay. Sounds good. Not, Although Kliegman does make it sound like, and he does say, that he just sort of walked in and nobody knew what he was doing or that he was there anymore. At a certain point, somebody had to have agreed that, like, yeah, come on in and test on our prisoners. So, yeah, as yeah. you mentioned, the prison was opened in 1896 and it closed in 1995, uh, 99 years, not reaching 100. So, uh, prison is a failure in that regard. <laughs> in December of 1922... The Philadelphia Evening Public Ledger did an expose on the treatment of prisoners at Holmesburg. And the headline read, No food for 24 hours for even just a whisper. The punishments that uh, were levied against prisoners by Holmesburg prison typically involved food. So you would have 24 hours without food for talking, smoking, chewing tobacco, right? Um, you had a loss of exercise privilege for something as minor as laughing out loud. At one point, 574 convicts um, 
were in the facility in 1922. Two thirds of those were in solitary confinement. So this was a bad prison in a country that is famous for bad prisons. Yeah. On December 6th of 1922, a headline in the uh, evening public ledger read, Brutal Treatment of Holmberg Men Known to Judges. And so there was there was a cop. His job was to report to the Board of Judges um, issues at local prisons. And he received so many complaints about uh, the issues at Holmberg that it he leaked it to the press. That's how the press found out. Um, So, again, though, we're talking 1922, right? And I'm not saying that people weren't kind or didn't have hearts, but it was a a different time. And if you were in prison, largely, you deserved to be there. And Mm. some of the people in prison were convicted felons who had committed murders. A lot of people were there for robbery, right? Some people were there for assaulting a police officer, so there's a spectrum of, like today, I'm not telling anything that's new or unknown. There's a spectrum of people who are in prison for various reasons, ranging from really awful to you had to put somebody in prison for that, right? Um, so the prisoners know that the public doesn't love prisoners, but the conditions in the prison are so awful, and in particular, the food as being used for a form of punishment, right, uh, was so, I don't know what word to use, but like the prisoners felt we can get people to unite behind us around food because mm-hmm. basic humanity would dictate that you got, people got to eat, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a hunger strike in August of 1938 and the hunger strike was eventually put down 23 people who, um, I don't want to say they organized the strike, but 23 of the most vocal strikers were sent to the Klondike. And the Klondike, I know, sounds like it's a really awful place in um, Alaska, but no, um, it's actually an awful place uh, in the Holmberg prison. So the Klondike was a small building housing only 12 cells was frequently employed as an isolation unit to punish prisoners deemed disruptive. Um, in August of 1938, the guards put these 23 men into the Klondike and they closed the windows. They turned off the water and they cranked up the heat. Oh my God. They used, uh, the facility used steam heat and coming out of uh, steam radiators. This, uh, caused the temperatures to rise to about 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Jesus. A few days later, the guards opened the door to find that four bodies had been baked to death with many of the other inmates unconscious or close to death. Oh. And some of what happened during that time, the water had been turned off inside the Klondike, the the isolation yeah. unit. Uh, but one of the water faucets... Um, was dripping uh-huh. and so the prisoners would lay under the water faucet and uh-huh. catch the water as it dripped right yeah um because it was steam heat there was a lot of condensation so prisoners would use um 
you know, they had stripped down because it was so incredibly hot. Yeah. So they would use their clothes to mop up the condensation and wring it oh and God. drink it, right? Oh, my God. Um, so cops open the doors and find four dead bodies. And the cops decide that these men went stir crazy and beat each other to death. Oh, jeez. The world took notice, and the deaths of the four men were covered in newspapers such as the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and Newsweek, the last of which gave the story three full pages. This story became the basis for a play called Not About Nightingales and was written by a young Tennessee Williams after he had read the news coverage of the events of Philadelphia. Um, this event at the time was described as the worst case of prison abuse in American history. Yeah, so um, Alan Hornblum, who wrote a book called Acres of Skin based on the Holmberg prison experiment, has written a novel that's based on... Uh, it has a couple of different names, but I like the baked oven murders and they use murder specifically because it's the police murdering inmates, right? Um, so from news articles written at the time out of Philadelphia, PA, it's, uh, the article opens with a quote, my poor boy, my poor boy, what have they done to you? Cried Mary Osborne glancing at the corpse lying before her. She then collapsed into the arms of distraught friends and relatives who had come to the city morgue to identify the remains of her 23-year-old son. The lifeless frame was shriveled, burned, and bruised, one eye ballooned to three or four times its size. Harry Osborne had once been ruggedly handsome and physically fit, but the lifeless frame on the slab in front of his mother was not only shriveled, but burned on the hands, feet, and torso. There were numerous bruises. One of... Um, Osborne's eyes had ballooned to three or four times its normal size, as stated previously. I'm surprised anyone survived that. Uh, I mean, just, just awful. Um, yeah. Outside of the morgue, the family of another deceased man named James McQuaid paused to speak to reporters. They're, they're just a bunch of murderers, screamed Herbert McQuaid, a brother of the dead man. I served overseas during the war and saw some pretty hideous sights, but nothing was half as bad as what I've just seen. His face was battered, his eyes were popping out, and his teeth were out. Um, the Comedica family of South Philly was equally horrified. We won't stop until we find out how this happened. And I'll, I'll emphasize that these are people in the 1920s talking about cops at a time when I would think that most Americans probably really just bought into the red, white, and blue. The police are always good. Um, mm. I would like to put the body of my brother on display so the public could really see what happened to him. His eyes were hanging out on his cheeks, and they have since been sewn up. The back of his head was bashed. Um, it was as though he were hit with a sledgehammer. The families questioned the sudden loss of their kin, wondering what brutal and human treatment could have caused their bodies to appear burned and beaten. Pennsylvania Governor George Earl declared in horror that the four men had been cooked alive slowly. Mm. Not a prison that's going to turn oh. away a medical doctor that wants to come in and, yeah, 
And even though it's what? So those experiments started in the 1950s. Um, this event happened in the 1920s. So 30 years between that. They've got a little bit yeah. better, I suppose. And at least prisoners were allowed food. Um, mm. And food wasn't used as a, as a form of punishment. Um, but yeah, eh, these sorts of stories are always really... You talk about them, and then it's you end up in this place where it's like, how do we come back from this? Let's try. That's no, that's terrible. Yeah, um, and so, so just awful. Um, and then, su not surprising that this prison does something that's awful again. So let's look at their apology for uh, the prison experiment on uh, prisoners. Yeah. So I forget what year this was. Do you remember what year this was that the apology happened? It was it was recently, wasn't it? Oh, uh, yeah. It happened uh, in 22, October 6th of 2022, when the city of Philadelphia apologized for the Holmberg. So like three days prison. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney said, while this happened many decades ago, we know that the historical impact and trauma of this practice of medical racism has extended for generations all the way through to the present day. One of our administration's priorities is to rectify historic wrongs while we work to build a more equitable future. And to do that, we must reckon with past atrocities. That is why our administration today, on behalf of the city of Philadelphia, is addressing this shameful time in Holmesburg's history. Without excuse, we formally and officially extend a sincere apology to those who were subjected to this inhumane and horrific abuse. We are also sorry it took far too long to hear these words. To the families and loved ones across generations who have been impacted by this deplorable chapter in our city's history, we are hopeful this formal apology brings you at least a small measure of closure. Recognizing the deep distrust experiments like this have created in our communities of color, we vow to continue to fight the inequities and disparities that continue to this day. Michael Cord, or Cord, a defense attorney and one of the activists who was a part of the movement, said that he was pleasantly surprised by the city's swift decision to issue the apology. It is one of the best, if not the best, apologies I've ever seen in my entire life, said Cord. I read it at least five times to see if there were any holes in it. I was pleasantly surprised and incredibly shocked. Well, let's see if the apology He's is clearly as good not a as listener Cord to our show. So. Yeah. <laughs> So, was there an expression of regret? Yes. They said, without excuse, um, we apologize and uh, formally extend a sincere apology. So, there was also a declaration of repentance. Was there an explanation of what went wrong? Um, no, they kind of said racism is why it went wrong, but that's not really a, an racism explanation. Racism in the past. Racism in the past. Um, so, I would say not really. Um, was there an acknowledgement of responsibility? Yes. Uh, an offer of repair. Well, they said we vow to continue to fight the inequities and disparities that continue to this day, but they don't offer to give anybody money or houses or pay for their health insurance. So um, not really. Um, and was there a request for forgiveness? Yes, I think. Um, wait, was there? There was an apology, but there was not a request for forgiveness. So I would give this apology. I don't think it's one of the best apologies I've ever seen in my entire no, life. No, it doesn't send I me it's, into shock. It's mid. It's mid. And I would give it um, a five because it's mid. I absolutely agree. It's a very standard apology. And again, when we look at things like corporations or cities, um, 
issuing an apology on behalf of the actions of people. Yeah. It's, it's always, it's always a culture. It's always a person trying to say, we're sticking a flag in this and we're raising notice about this sort of a situation. It will never happen again, or it shouldn't have happened in the first place. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it's fine. Average. It's a start. I think. It's a start, and it should go on to um, to include some research into why it happened, why this was allowed to happen, and some sort of um, uh, reparations. So I think that would be a good next step, and then I would consider the apology to be much better. One of the one of the better apologies. Uh, yeah, it would. I would definitely want to see what our action plan was based yeah. on this, outside yeah. of the very nice. Um, we continue to vow to fight the good fight. Because mm-hmm. me too, me too. Right. I'm going to fight that right. good fight. We, we all are going to fight the good fight. Yeah. But what is that going to do for anyone? So, okay. Um, well, so do you have an apology expected or a who's sorry now? Of course I Speaking do, of, because this is episode do. 102. And <laughs> we have had 102 of these. And so I know yes. it's coming. And I have one. <laughs> it's, it's right here. Here it comes. Would you like me to go first? Yes. okay i have one it's short but sweet i have an apology expected lufthansa um, has become the first major airline to ban air tags from checked bags so air tags are those little things that you can buy that track things and you put them on your phone or put them in your luggage or put them in your purse and then you can if someone steals your luggage or your purse or your luggage gets lost you can find out where it is and there was a recent twitter thread where somebody um got their bags lost in france and um the it wasn't Lufthansa. It might have been Lufthansa. The, the the airline couldn't find the bags. Said we we don't know where your bags are. We have no idea. But the air tag said it was in Toulouse. So the people were like back and forth with with the airline saying, um, "My air tag says it's in Toulouse. Can you find it?" And they're like, "No, we can't find it." And you know, can you fly me to Toulouse to to find it? I'll find it myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that person ever got their bags back, but. Um, I think soon after that, Lufthansa banned air tags from check bags, and they said that it was because of the policy for checking personal electronic devices, which requires that they be turned off. And if you turn off the air tags, they don't work anymore. So, um, but that's obviously just a screen for the fact that they don't want to be embarrassed by the fact that somebody on, you know, in, in Chicago can figure out where their bag got lost at, but the airline themselves can't find it. So why doesn't the airline just start using air tags on all luggage? You'd think that that would be helpful. But anyway, that's my apology expected. I expect Lufthansa to apologize for banning air tags because I think they're just trying to cover up their own embarrassment. Uh, I mean, good luck to them for yeah, banning air good tags. Luck to them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, wow. That's. I just don't understand. I understand how things can get lost, but it's like you guys have this. Here's how technical I am. You have the scanner guns and you scan all the tags as they go through. Why can't the scanner tags just be the point of location of the bag? And I don't need to know exactly where it is every minute, but, oh, it's on the belt. Oh, it's in the holding bay. Oh, it's out of the holding bay. Well, you have to know where it is to scan it. So that's the problem. Yeah, I yeah, but but I see what you're saying. Why not scan it everywhere, and then you'd know where it was because it had just been scanned at whatever well, latest location or was. Or like they have to scan them anyway, right? Um, yeah. So they do have to scan. They scan them when you hand them to the 
uh, clerk at the counter and they get put on the belt and then they're scanned when they come off the belt and onto the trolley. And then they're scanned when they come off of the trolley and into the holding bay. And Presumably. Everybody I don't know the, what they do. Well, they may never scan it again. They may not. Who knows? Yeah, I'm assuming that that <laughs> happens. You know what? You're right. Here, look at me. I'm outraged that, like... Your process is much better than perhaps the process actually in play. I'm not allowing for human beings is what it is. <laughs> which is why the world needs to be controlled by robots. And I look it forward does, to that glorious you. future. Um, yeah, so I, I had a good one. And then it was gone, and then it came back, and then it was gone. So, oh, no. yeah. Um, right. Well, we can give you a rain check if you like. I'm going to take that rain check. Okay, that's that's no problem. I'll take a rain check in the future myself, I'm sure. I mean, I could so, apologize to the guy from this morning with the windshield wiper by saying, I'm sorry that I said, go away. So bluntly, I could have just said, no, thank you. <laughs> And left it at that. Well, you did say no thank you, and then you said go away. So. I know. Yeah, right. It's so, all right. I, yeah, so. That's your apology. That, that'll be Fair my enough. apology. Yeah, so. Anyway, on okay. that note. Thanks, Goodbye, everybody. everyone. We'll see you later. Take care. Stay, stay, stay cool, cool cucumber. Cucumbers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you started, and then I was like, don't step on her line. <laughs> Good enough. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Listening to Apologies Accepted, the podcast. You can find links to the articles and the sources in the show notes. To submit an apology or find out more, visit us at apologiesaccepted.net, where you can also find our merchandise. We're on Twitter at Apologies Accepted and on Instagram at Apologies.accepted. You can support our important work at Patreon forward slash Apologies Accepted. And fuck Facebook. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>